the Commonwealth Club of California congratulates the class of 2021. We know how much you want to stay connected with the issues and influencers that matter most. That's why we're offering all high school and college graduates in the class of 2021 a free one-year membership in the club. From politics to social justice, climate to pop culture, membership in the Commonwealth Club opens up new worlds of learning and the chance to interact in person and online with today's headline makers and people like yourselves who care about what's going on in the world. Claim your free membership at commonwealthclub.org grads. And join us. We look forward to welcoming you to the club. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Commonwealth Club, the nation's oldest and largest political affairs forum. I'm Robert Rosenthal, a longtime journalist uh, and board member of the Center for Investigative Reporting. Uh, I'll be your moderator for today's program called Prison Truth, the San Quentin News Story. Uh, I have a little familiarity uh, with San Quentin as I've been in there many times in another program called Guiding Rage into Power. And I, I'm really happy to be here today to be with Bill Drummond, uh, whose book is really worth reading. And he's, he's had an extraordinary career as a journalist, as a professor, uh, as a really a trailblazer early in his career as an African-American man in the newsroom, every newsroom he worked in. Uh, he started his career after graduating from Columbia in the mid-60s at the Louisville Courier-Journal, where one of the things he covered was the civil rights movement. From there, he joined the L.A. Times in 1968. Uh, he worked on the city staff for a while, but he was such a good reporter, even though he was very young, he was quickly... Uh, promoted to a, one of the plum jobs in journalism to be a foreign correspondent where he was the bureau chief in New Delhi and in Jerusalem. Uh, he came back and he was named a, a, a White House fellow by Gerald Ford, President Gerald Ford. And when Ford lost, he stayed on and, and Bill was associate press secretary of President Jimmy Carter. Uh, he came back to the L.A. Times and worked in the Washington Bureau of the L.A. Times. But in 1979, uh, he joined NPR uh, and its morning edition, which we all know. And in 1983, Bill became a professor at UC Berkeley's Graduate School of Journalism. In his book that we're here to talk about today, Prison Truth, the Story of the San Quentin News, Bill really looks at how, uh, Professor Drummond really looks at how, uh, the newspaper led to tremendous changes in terms of the perceptions of inmates and policy in San Quentin and in prisons throughout California. And in his book, he really argues and postulates that that process of uh, inmates becoming journalists helped create tremendous changes that transformed, helped transform San Quentin, which was once known as a living hell, into one of the really model prisons uh, in the United States today. So here's Bill Drummond, Professor Bill Drummond. Uh, let's welcome him, and he's going to give a presentation, and then we'll have a talk following this. And if you're online and want to throw out questions, you can do it through chat. Bill Drummond. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm a great friend and supporter of the Commonwealth Club done many programs. This is my first visit to your space, your new space. It's amazing. I'm, I'm, 
used to that place over there on Market Street, which was uh, kind, of a, kind of a drab place compared to this. So what I'm going to do is talk to you a little bit about uh, the background of San Quentin in the modern era. The part that I know best is the part when I first started getting involved with it. Now, I've got to, I hate PowerPoint, but hey, this is what we've got. So I'm going to show you some slides. Now, the point that I want to make is that uh, San Quentin shares a particularly important part in the kind of popular culture of the United States. You, you may not realize it, but San Quentin has been in the movies more times than any other prison in the world, including the Bastille. And it, it, it's, it, it's very practical reason. Uh, when the movie industry was get, just getting going in the early 20th century, uh, and they wanted to do a prison movie, there was not a lot of choice because there weren't that many prisons. There was San Quentin and Folsom, and that was, that was basically it. Uh, you could argue that, well, Sing Sing had a you know, really dramatic reputation, except that it's way on the other side of the country. So it was kind of hard for people to get the budget to go all the way back there and shoot a movie. So a lot of movies got to be made at San Quentin. So San Quentin became kind of an icon and kind of the definition of, of prisons. Okay, <clears throat> let's fast forward. Now, uh, I'm going to play a song for you that is done by Johnny Cash. And uh, the reason I'm playing this song is that I have a feeling that that song, which was recorded in, 19, in February 1968, has a profound effect on the way we have been thinking about San Quentin Prison. And that way of thinking about San Quentin Prison has been profoundly wrong. You probably heard it. That, that song went triple platinum. It's basically Johnny Cash and his crew came to San Quentin in, in February of uh, 1968, and they gave a concert. And uh, he performed that song uh, uh, about San Quentin. It had just been written, I think, shortly before that, a couple of weeks before. And the phrases are familiar. San Quentin, you're living hell to me, et cetera, et cetera. You all know that song. Well, what happened uh, was that when he said that phrase, San Quentin, you're living hell to me, etc., there was this raucous howling from the uh, audience. And if you look at the video on YouTube, which we can't show you, the video on YouTube, you could see that it was applauded, you know, and, and the camera panned, uh, in the audience, and you see all of these guys, and they're kind of laughing and hooting, and you get the impression, hey, yeah, these guys are prisoners, but they, you know, they seem like they're like going along with the gag. Obviously, they don't like the management, and so they're they're expressing their feelings about prison. But you have a feeling that they're all sort of like having a more or less good time at this concert. Well, it wasn't really like that. This was a time that was amazingly important in the evolution of San Quentin. I'll tell you why. At that point, when they, uh, when they had that concert, uh, the 
the population of the uh, California prison system was still predominantly white. But because of a lot of social changes, more and more prisoners who were black or Latino were coming to prison. And they were coming off of some very, very troubled political background in their neighborhoods, in their communities. Martin Luther King had been assassinated. Uh, there was the Watts riot. There was all of this turmoil that was happening on the streets. And these people eventually wound up caught up in the criminal justice system, and they came to prison. And they encountered this kind of white establishment of people who were there already who felt that, you know, this was their space and they knew how to run things. So underneath the surface, there was this tension between the, the newly arrived uh, people of color and the, and the white prisoners there. You never get any kind of sense of that if you uh, listen uh, to that Johnny Cash song, which went, as I said, triple platinum. And when I went to the interview, Warden uh, Lewis Nelson, I think it was 1969, 68 or 69, he had uh, uh, one of those platinum records on his wall. He was very proud of it. Well, what I'm here to tell you is that that was not the whole story. How do we know that? Well, okay, this is a little bit of media history to you. Granada Television uh, was invented in Britain uh, shortly after the BBC decided to allow private broadcast. And there was a lot of money behind Granada Television. And they produced some really amazing stuff. So this was one of their initial projects. They got in touch when they heard that Cash was going to do this. And they got permission to take film cameras in. And in those days, hey, the warden didn't care. So he said, Johnny Cash, whoa. So you got a film crew? Yeah, fine. Okay, so he not only shot the concert, they allowed these guys to kind of roam around and interview prisoners, the correctional officers, and all of that. And that's where this whole uh, uh, background of what was going on in San Quentin got recorded. That's how it was made manifest. The documentary was never shown in the United States. It was never shown in the United States. So the public, millions and millions of people who heard this song, had no idea what the background was. They had no idea. Let's see what happens here. Okay. Now, is this going to play for me or not? One more time. Huh? Hit the button one more time. Okay. Well, love it. Throughout the whole Department of Corrections, anybody that uh, comes to the surface, so to speak, for some bad qualities, highly violent, uh, he starts riots, he's a killer, uh, Anything like that, usually he's going to end up here. We had the work strike, which uh, uh, later resulted in uh, uh, a retaliation thing between one group against another and resulted in uh, the majority of the inmates in the institution rebelling. And when you come out of the mess hall that day, when you walk right into the middle of a, you know, a racial confrontation, and it was black on one side, and Mexican white on the other side. And uh, you were just arbitrarily forced into, you know, going to your own, but, you know, nothing else by skin pigmentation. You had no choice. I'm not a fascist, but I am a segregationist. 
I don't believe in immigration, especially in prison. It creates a lot of tensions, especially with the the younger generation of the black people who are are taking the militant views. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, uh, I have no part of immigration. I was raised like they were. I had nothing. And I mean, I had to go out and steal mine, what I wanted to get. You know I mean? Well, they want everything on a platter. You don't get nothing on a platter today. Well, it isn't so much what's wrong with them. It's just that I don't want to be bothered with their problems, and I don't want their whatever problems they have to be burdened on my shoulders. I feel they should find their own solution. Well, that was the atmosphere inside the prison. I really strongly, if you're interested in this, you should go back. You can't, it, it's not easy to get at it, but you can search online. It'll cost you a few bucks, and you can actually watch that whole documentary. But it, it's fascinating stuff. Now, we can go on and on talking about Johnny Cash. Uh, he is an iconic American figure, and that's why the, the Granada guys wanted... Uh, to do this video on him because t he kind of epitomized uh, the, the lonely uh, cowboy American. Uh, he was an enigmatic character. He had his own long experience with incarceration. I don't know if you know this or not. His first wife was black. Catch his first wife. So he was not a segregationist by any means. And uh, in, in researching that, I saw a couple of biographies about him, and he realized more than anybody else in that auditorium what was going on, that they were just on the knife's edge of the whole place blowing up. And he said that he, he felt that all he had to see, say was, let's go, and they would have torn that place apart. But America, listening to the uh, Johnny Cash album, had no idea. Okay, so why was that? Hmm... Let's see. That was 1968. We're going to fast forward here to 1970 and the Soledad Brothers. For those of you who are my age and older, you remember this. This is a big, iconic uh, uh, cause. Uh, uh, earlier in that year, uh, Officer John Mills, uh, 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 the CDCR, was thrown off a tier and killed. And eventually, these three lads, Flita, Drumgo, John Clouchette, and the guy in the back is George Jackson. They were indicted in Monterey County, uh, and then they eventually changed venue to Marin because they said they couldn't get a, uh, a fair trial. And this is the big cause celebre. And it was this point at which me, I, began to get involved in this stuff. This is part of my story, because the L.A. Times was only covering this by wire copy, so we didn't staff it. We didn't think it was a very big deal. And I went to my boss and said, hmm, you know, this is a big deal. Prison racial tensions. Hmm. Where am I going with this? Oh, there we go. <clears throat> I came to focus on uh, San Quentin because of Eldridge Cleaver, who's a... Uh, former uh, prisoner, and uh, he, in 1968, I forget the date, caused a big stir because he was invited to be a guest lecturer at UC Berkeley, and I had met him 
and heard his story about his experience in San Quentin. And that's when I first began to get interested in this. So I convinced my boss to do a big story about prison racial tensions in 1970. Boss said, okay, go ahead. So I spent months and months and months, traveled the length and breadth of the state, went to a bunch of prisons, and I produced a story <laughs> that was published in August of 1970. And it was the very weekend in which George Jackson's younger brother, Jonathan Jackson, tried to break his brother out of San Quentin. And he took a bunch of hostages. There was a big shootout. The kid was, was, uh, was killed in the, in the melee. And this was a huge thing. This was huge. By accident, the L.A. Times had my story sitting in their bin. And they said, oh, let's run this story. <laughs> so I look like a genius. I don't know if they ever would have run that story if this hadn't happened, because that story was really long. But anyway, it ran. And so I was the guy who kind of seized upon prisons as a source of, of, of stories. And, and that kind of propelled my career, all these good things that uh, Rob Rosenthal talked about. And he said, this, this guy Drummond's a genius. It was not. It was just kind of accident. Okay, why weren't they interested in... Why, why weren't they interested in this? This is a picture of the L.A. Times office that I joined in 1967. Now, is there something remarkable about this? That, what, what? Okay. What do you think? Huh? One woman and one black guy. The woman is Dorothy Townsend Vanderbilt, and the black guy is a guy named Ray Rogers. And uh, so, hey, I'm not condemning them. This is my family for many years. They're not bad people, but they are victims of their own upbringing and their own way of seeing the world. We've changed. Okay, this is, fast forward ahead again. This is me in 2012 with, after I joined as an advisor to San Quentin News. And this is John Egan. And uh, these two here are still advisors. And all of the guys that you see up here are sprung, except for this one. That's Juan Haynes, who's still in the jug. All the others have been paroled. Uh, this is Arnulfo Timoteo Garcia, who is a major figure in my book. And he was paroled. He had three, four life sentences, whatever. Anyway, he was eventually paroled, and he was killed in the terrible automobile accident in 2017. So that's my story. This guy, I'm going to end with <coughs> mentioning <coughs> the power of the newspaper, well, it, it's kind of uh, a story about the power of the media to focus attention on certain people. Now, um, this is Kamau Bell, who's a well-known comedian on TV. And this is Rasan Thomas, also known as New York. And Thomas has been in jail for a long time. Life, two murders. But he's a uh, a, a tremendously uh, influential writer, and he's also the co-host 
of a very successful um, podcast called Ear Hustle. So because he is well known, when he had his hearing, his commutation hearing, uh, I think it was on Monday, lots of people spoke up for him. And the, the board uh, decided to vote in favor of letting him go. And the reason for that is that he's well known. He's well known. Juan uh, Haynes, whom you saw before, is going to go to the parole board in December. Chances are, because he's well known, he's a published journalist, he'll probably get a favorable recognition. Now, there are thousands of other guys. They're back there. They're not getting it. But that just one small glimpse of how this power of media works. Now, I'm going to close by saying one other thing. Um, the whole idea, the whole uh, uh, landscape of, um, of, of incarceration has changed dramatically because of not just the newspaper, but also this whole phenomenon of social media, the digital world. There are so many places now, thanks to Facebook, Twitter, websites, where families and friends of incarcerated inmates get together, they talk, they organize, they change laws. This has been a profoundly important uh, change. And I'm just going to close by doing one other thing, because I'm, I see a couple of my friends back there, uh, Dwayne Boatwright and uh, Jesse Vasquez, who are former colleagues from San Quentin News. And Jesse wanted me to... <laughs> to plug the August 26, 2021 fundraiser for San Quentin News. He gave me a link, but it's way too complicated. If you're interested, I can give it to you afterward. But the one other thing you need to know about San Quentin News is that way back in, I think it was 2012, the uh, state cut off the funding for the print shop, which had published the newspaper. So ever since then, uh, it's been publishing the newspaper out of its own pocket, basically, fundraising, donations. I passed around some copies of the newspaper. Please give a donation, and, and you'll get the paper in your, in your mailbox. This is the way it's staying afloat, because it's being done entirely through the generosity of foundations and individuals. So that's my spiel. Thank you very much for your attention, and uh, I'm happy to answer questions, and we'll, uh, I'm sure uh, Rob will have some pointed questions for me when we, when we resume the session. Thank you. Thank you, Professor Bill Drummond, uh, for those remarks. Uh, now it's time for the Q&A, and please note that this is the Commonwealth Club program called Prison Truth, the San Quentin News Story. So one thing, uh, first of all, as I said earlier, I really enjoyed the book, and I've had the really good fortune uh, to be a visitor to San Quentin many times and, and, inter and meet many of the inmates and really be share their sort of knowledge and wisdom, which may sound like a strange thing to say when you talk about men who have committed, some, in some cases, very violent crimes. But... One thing, Bill, that really comes through in the book also, uh, which you didn't mention, was the, through, the, through your uh, connection to the journalism school, the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, how you also created a program which brought dozens, I think probably before COVID, well over around 80, I think you say in the book, 
students from UC Berkeley, from very diverse backgrounds from all around the world, who became part of the San Quentin News. And one of the things that I know I've personally experienced, and I'm sure you have, is sort of the destruction of every stereotype you have about prison and the men in the prison. So can you talk a little bit about uh, how that became not only a, a teaching moment, but really a life teaching moment about and, and what that impact it had on the students? Because I think it's very important. Oh, be happy to. The, the background of that is <clears throat> after I... Um, you know, I'll be, I'll be frank with you. The journalism business uh, began to collapse. As you all know, you've heard a lot about this. And around about 2012 or so, I was running out of gas. As a full-time faculty with tenure, I could stay there until, you know, I died. But I was running out of any inspiration. I said, well, why am I doing this? This, there's no future in this. It's, 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 not, it's not working for me anymore. I can't face these young people and say, go into this when newspapers are closing and uh, the situation is so bleak. It was at that point that one of my former students, bless his heart, Nigel Hatton, who is now a professor at UC Merced, <clears throat> Nigel volunteered with an organization called the Prison University Project, which teaches college-level courses at San Quentin. And he said, uh, I want to teach an introductory journalism course, uh, but would you co-teach it with me? I said, yeah, sounds like a plan. I didn't have any plans that summer. So Nigel and I decided we were going to teach this class, and it's a serious class. It meets two times a week, and you've got to have a syllabus. It has to be approved. It's, it's no fooling around. This is, this is the real deal. So... <laughs> After the first class, Nigel got some kind of a grant. And he went off to Scandinavia for some research and left me with this class. I had 15 students and four auditors. I said, okay, let's see how this is going to work. Anyway, this was my big revelation. There I was, and I'm dealing with these guys who are they're, uh, in their 40s, 50s, 60s, a few older than me. One guy was older than me. <laughs> and I said, how is this going to work out when I'm used to dealing with 20-somethings? Well, it was a, a, a revelation. They, they, their prose was a little bit rocky. But boy, did these guys ever have experiences, and were they ever opinionated about everything? They read everything. This is the difference. When I give an assignment in uh, that class to read... They would read it and annotate it and want to discuss it. Try that at UC Berkeley. Uh, it's going to hit and miss. You're not going to get a lot of people that read the assignment, let alone went over it with that amount of uh, painstaking care. We, I gave them assignments that they could do within the framework of the prison. They sometimes interviewed staff people. They interviewed other prisoners. Anyway, I had a great time, and... At the end of the course, Juan Haynes, whom I pointed out a little while ago, he approached me and said, we're trying to get uh, San Quentin News going, and uh, we were wondering if you would agree to be a, uh, an advisor. And I thought about it, and I didn't have anything going. I said, why not? So later, that's when I met 
Arnulfo, Arnulfo, this <laughs> very persuasive and charismatic guy, he pitches me on this. And so I said, okay, of course, I'll do it. Well, I thought about it and I said, okay, I'm one person. I can come over there and I can hook paragraphs and edit copy, but that's not going to make a big difference. So I said, we were going through the same kind of uh, rocky transition at the journalism school, trying to figure out what we ought to be teaching. One of the things that went down the tubes in the advent of the internet was editing. We used to teach editing, copy reading, for those of you who are not part of the trade. That was the first thing that went down. <laughs> they said, you don't need that. Yes, you do. Well, and I took it upon myself. I said, okay, we're going to resume an editing course, and I'm going to take these UC Berkeley students over there, and I'm going to have them work with these prisoners on their copy. This is, this, this is what they need to do. They need to sit down with somebody, go over there, let them know when something needs attribution, make this stuff readable. When I first started that, I didn't even think we were going to have a class. I had like five students. And little by little, I kept at it. And, you know, word of mouth, it became more and more popular. Now, all these years later, I think I've had more than 80 students. And a lot of the students that I had in the beginning who graduated, they still want to come back. And why? You say, why did they do it? It's not just the joy of sitting around editing copy. And I noticed when we'd walk into the, uh, into the media center, there would be this, this uh, welcoming, shaking hands, discussion. There would be at least 15 minutes of people just talking before we'd ever sit down and say, okay, now is the time. Sit down at the workstations. Let's get to work. So they'd work. A lot of their conversations had to do with more than the story they were working on. They would... Uh, the people... Uh, in in prison have a great thirst to know just the most elementary things about life on the outside. They have no access to cell phones legally, hey. And they have no internet for the most part. So the conversation, it, it wove into just people who are 20 years old talking to people who are 45 and 50 years old. And friendships developed uh, and I'm not sure. I, I, I ride back to school with these kids in the car, and we kind of debrief. That's my unofficial office hour. They get to know them. They get to know the facts of these guys' lives. They, they learn to respect them. Uh, and again, word of mouth, word of mouth, word of mouth. And uh, over the years, people have realized that this is uh, a unique opportunity in their lives. Now, <laughs> it's possible, there, there are a few of them, people who have been released from San Quentin, and they've got their uh, units, thanks to Prison University Project, and they've been admitted to UC Berkeley, and I'm trying to recruit them for my class. I've had one so far, and <laughs> he was something else. He was great. He was older than me. He had so much life experience in that class. He was, he was the focal point of the class. This is something that I've been a big advocate for, that we've got, we got to break that barrier. I mean, the two oldest institutions in the state of California, San Quentin, 1852, 
University of California, 1854. We spend more on prisons than we do on higher education. This is a great resource. They're great people there. And we can learn from them. They, they've learned from their mistakes, and we can learn from them. Mm-hmm. But one of the issues, the, the paper was closed for, I think, close to 20 years when it was reopened. Uh, you know, there's questions, you know, and, and the, for people who wanted to know, here's the, the most recent edition. So they're publishing again and haven't, you know, I'm not sure how COVID affected them. I'm sure they didn't because they couldn't be together. But talk a little bit about how the, the fine line between not offending the prison, you know, <laughs> the California Department of Prisons, and also meeting the needs of the inmates and the balancing act between telling stories they want to tell, they can tell, and how they tell them. It's, almost, it's not only a ethical, it's almost a moral responsibility they have because this is, they know if they cross a certain line, they risk being shut down, but they don't want to feel that they're censored. So how did, how did that work out in terms of putting out the paper and the editorial decisions of what was actually written and reported on? It's, it's a delicate waltz. And Bill, who, who's former, <laughs> formerly with the Department of Corrections, he used to read some of the copy. So I'd be interested to know what you have to say after this. But anyway, um, the, the, the warden uh, uh, Ayers, who was the guy back in uh, 2008, if I'm not mistaken, who brought the paper back, Warden Ayers took it upon himself, because the paper had been dark for more than a dozen years because of just the, the sensitivity of the management in the CDCR. They, they couldn't control it. And the courts had said, you cannot censor. Believe it or not, it's a prison publication, all that. <laughs> Funny how the Constitution works. The, the prison system may not censor. Well, the prison system then said, oh, well, we don't have to publish a newspaper either, do we? And the answer was No. And so they shut it down. Well, Ayers, because it was just the guy's personality, and he's still on the planet, great guy, it was Ayers who decided to run the risk, and he, he brought it back. And Ayers warned them. He said, look, uh, if you guys publish something, and the next day the governor sees it, or somebody in the legislature, and they say, what the hell's going on? We don't want this, and they shut it down. You will have failed, and you don't want to fail. And they took that to heart. They are much more severe on themselves, and they took an entirely different tack after the after the, uh, the paper came back. What before it was kind of like a, a local newspaper, and and there was a lot of cheap crime and violence. Every stabbing out on the yard got reported. Well, when it came back, they were on a different tack. They were going to publish redemption stories. So if you look around, look at the copy. There are stories of people who succeed. There are lots of stories about incarceration, kind of inside baseball stories about incarceration. But what you see in there are people who have have come to Jesus, not necessarily Jesus, Jesus, but come to the idea that they want to turn their lives around. And this is how we're going to do it. So there is an awful lot of reporting about positive things. Still, there are some real uh, uh, important issues 
that you have to walk delicately around. And everybody knows that. So here, here is the routine. Now, keep in mind now, they, they cannot censor you. They cannot censor you. It was in 2014, there was a little dust up, and, and one of the issues, uh, uh, one of the editions of San Quentin News was never distributed because there was an argument about a picture that had gotten printed but was not previously authorized. Okay, after that, the, the, all of the, 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 the people in, in CDCR got alarmed, and they came down. They had a big meeting at San Quentin, and they, they worked out this plan that is in effect today. What happens is that they do all the stories. They set it up into PDFs suitable to be published, either run off in, at, at this print shop in San Rafael or put up on the web. The stories go off to Sacramento, and people there read them, read the stories. Most of the time, they're fact-checking, and they're doing necessary editing, which is very helpful. Every once in a while, they'll raise a question, and it's a question of policy. Well, the deal that they've got is that they can object to something, but if they do, it becomes a part of the story. So, in other words, almost overnight, San Quentin News became an authoritative publication because everything that's read, everything that's published is read by somebody in Sacramento. Therefore, hey, it's got to be legit. Also, another person who I, I, I can't say enough for is Lieutenant Sam Robinson, who is uh, the public information officer, and he is kind of the de facto publisher. He is a, a, an extremely... A uh, wise man and a very, very effective manager over the years. And he would have to be in order to keep this kind of an operation together. And it's the trust that they have in Sam and this link that they have with the, with the overseers in, uh, in Sacramento that uh, have blended to make this thing actually work. But still, it presents challenges every time you, you get ready to publish. Now, I'll give you one example, and it stands out in my mind. It, it had to do with something at the time that was very controversial, and that is transgender uh, rights and what the prison's responsibility is for people who feel that they're not in the, they're, they're wrongly assigned in their gender. And I can't remember exactly when, but four years ago, there was a correctional officer who had been hired as a man, decided that this was wrong, went through the whole uh, procedure of hormones, everything, the operation, and then showed up at work and was a female. Okay. The, <laughs> naturally, this was a story. Well, it happened against a backdrop in which there were dozens of, of prisoners in the system who the same thing. They were saying, I'm wrongly assigned, and I want to get fixed. And the state has to pay for it. Well, this was all tied up in the courts, and it was a very sensitive topic. Well, the story that was done about this correctional officer was absolutely legit. She had cooperated. I came into the media center. She's sitting there and talking with the, uh, with the writers, and the story was all set to go, only it didn't go. 
They held on to it for about three months. The reason that they held on to it was nothing about factual. There was policy all over that. If, if you publish the fact that the state paid for this correctional officer to have that gender reassignment surgery, how are you going to turn it down for inmates? It's, it's illogical. Well, <laughs> what they do now is that if an inmate comes forward and says, okay, I want the, I want the surgery, they say, oh, uh, you look good for parole. Let's, let's get, <laughs> send that guy home. <laughs> Bill, were there ever uh, stories that didn't reach the uh, point where they were actually written and then submitted to be published that you, there was a debate about that you can't do it? And uh, was there ever that kind of friction like where you might have to have to step in and say, you know, if we do this story and try and get it published, it's going to cause a lot of problems we don't need. No, I have to say, in all honesty, and Jesse and Wayne, you can correct me, I have never run across such a story. And that's because they know better than I do. And, and, and first of all, nobody is going to ever publish a story that is basically somebody grinding his own axe. That's, that's, that's completely forbidden. Even though a lot of people have litigation that they've been pursuing for years. That's not going to get in the paper. But uh, the stuff that they, they kind of instinctively know uh, that's going to be a problem is if you run across, say, for example, a CO involved in some illegal activity or something like that, no, that's not going to make it because that's not the right venue for that. It reflects badly on the prison. And this is, this is not in, within the framework of what their, their mandate is. But in all honesty, I, I have never run across such a story. Yeah, so a CO would be a corrections officer, for example, yeah. doing something corrupt. And so you, with that, might, you might report that in some way, but you wouldn't report on it. No, you wouldn't report on it. Do the, do the men who are on the staff and, and their bylines are on the stories have internal issues with other inmates or demands on them or even status, status because they're sort of public figures almost, being journalists or newspaper men in the prison? You know, I think they are all very proud to be associated with the paper. That's my impression. Uh, they get to be, uh, particularly the guys that write sports, the sports editors, they're like a really big deal. And they're proud of, of having uh, a job that is like a job. They go into a clean, uh, tidy office. They talk about issues. Um, most of the prison jobs are not like that. Most of the prison jobs for which they make a buck a day uh, are uh, uh, jobs like porters and laundry or food service and things like that. They have no glamour. There's, there's, there's nothing in terms of prestige attached to them. And, uh, and we point with pride that all of the guys that uh, uh, work for San Quentin News have been exemplary in terms of their behavior. Otherwise, they'd never get the job. Now, I've got to do a big caveat here, because when I'm talking, I'm talking about a relatively small number of people out of the number of people in San Quentin that I have actually met and interacted with over the, uh, the last 10 years or so. That's not encompassing everybody in that prison, for sure. But look at it this way. You're talking about a group of people who are a select group. First of all, you've got to be a select group to get to San Quentin. It's a level two. It's a level two, meaning that is the next highest uh, other than fire camps and things that don't even have walls around them. 
but it's, it's, it's the least severe of incarceration. You go up to three different, four, God forbid, that is a much more severe situation, much more violent too. So you've got to actually have paid some dues in order to be sent to San Quentin. And then once you get there, to get onto the newspaper, you've got to apply and go through a lot of hoops and all that stuff. So it's a very select group. Now, I should say one other thing, that, um, just to bring you up to date, we haven't talked a lot about the COVID, uh, but the, the, the complexion of the, of the prison now is quite different. I've been going back since they uh, have begun to reopen, and it's a very different place now than it was in, in, in uh, December of uh, 2019. The population of San Quentin was about 4,500. Now it's about 2,500. Now you say, well, what happened to all those people? Well, some of them got released, some of them got transferred. And then, according to what they tell me in the newsroom, there's a different kind of prisoner that's coming. Different kind. The, the prisoners that are showing up on the yard are younger. They're often white. They have a lot of tattoos. And they seem to be uh, a little bit, um, how shall I say it, delicately in need of some kind of counseling because they seem to be a little bit disturbed. Now, I'm not sure if this is policy. You never can tell. These, this information is coming to you from people who are very astute observers of their surroundings. Now, uh, in going back and trying to resume publication of the paper, this is going to be a factor uh, in you know how, how we're going to be able to continue that going forward. Hmm, that's interesting. Uh, you, you, one of the things you talk about in the book is that journalism or working on the newspaper and not only writing stories about other things, but understanding that they need to tell their own, own stories and looking at who they are becomes its own form of rehabilitation. I mean, you witnessed that. Mm-hmm. I mean, can you talk a little bit about how that happens? Uh, you know, the, it happens individually. I found, you probably find the same thing. When, when you're writing about things in, uh, that you've encountered as a journalist, it gives you an amazing insight into yourself and the things that have happened to you. <laughs> the, the thing about journalism is that you have to make a distinction between what you know and what you can prove and what you can authoritatively point to as evidence and the stuff that you just instinctively feel. And when you do an edit with a San Quentin writer, it's like giving somebody a final exam. They come and they usually have a, a, a bunch, you know, like a loose-leaf binder, and they've got all of the stuff that it took to make that story. So you, if you raise a question, they leaf through there and they find it. And if you find something, say, well how do you know this? And they don't have an answer? Oh, then I guess we aren't going to put that in the paper because that's just something that you're cooking up. So it, as a life's occupation, and, and a lot of these people are in for many, many years, this is an important distinction that you have to make. What do you know your, yourself that you can prove what has happened? And the things that you've you've had a, um, a strong feeling about or, or you know, your, your instincts tell you all, all the other things that we think of as being uh, 
bias. I think they're much more aware of bias in their writing. And, and the stories wind up being relatively straight because they're always attributed. But overall, as I said in the very beginning, the, it, uh, their, their purpose is to talk and expound on redemption. Now you say, whoa, that's, that's taking a big step. Huh. Have you ever read the Christian Science Monitor? I used to work for them. <laughs> this is not new. <laughs> the Christian Science Monitor, every story, it, it can't just fall flat. This horrible thing happened. It has to be somewhere a redemptive message in that story. And, uh, and I think that's very important. One of my friends, uh, who's a professor uh, in Canada, Jeffrey Dworkin, who, who used to be the, the uh, news di- uh, uh, director at NPR, uh, he said something that was very profound. He said that news organizations today generally are happy if they publish news that makes you sad. <laughs> Think about it. If they publish news that makes you happy, then the news management is sad. <laughs> That's... How do you get clicks? You alarm people. You get them all fired up. That's unfortunately the, the, the situation we find ourselves in with the things that we call news media. Well, San Quentin News does not do that. They portray problems. That's, that's for sure. But if you look through that newspaper, uh, the the great majority of the things that you're going to read about are these pictures of people graduating or they're reconciled with their families or people that are coming forward with, uh, with uh, new rehabilitative programs. Now, I was saying a little while ago, you have to work your way into San Quentin. Why is that? San Quentin is the only, <laughs> it's, it's the only prison in California that's located in a major metropolitan area. The only one. The only one. So what does that mean? That means that there are huge numbers of people who are volunteers, like Rob Rosenthal and me, who volunteer our time to go in. There are 2,000. There are almost as many uh, volunteers as there are prisoners. That is not true elsewhere. And so they have lots and lots of opportunities to turn their lives around, to use that term. So there, there, there are all sorts of uh, sort of clinical things that they can do, but other things that have to do with racial identity. There are Hawaiian groups. Uh, God knows there are Native American groups. They even have sweat lodges. But all of these different things uh, go into uh, providing a, a kind of a, an ecology for people to change their lives. And can you replicate that? Try it. Try that in one of these, you know, high desert up in Susanville or someplace. You can't do it because you don't have the, 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 the community outside that. So why did they do that? Well, when I was reporting on prisons back in 1970, we had eight male prisons, eight. Now we have 33 prisons and during the 80s, when we went through this building boom, it became kind of like a WPA project. There were jobs for these little towns out in the valley. 
And that's what we're stuck with. We're stuck with separating people from their, from their families in isolated situations. And that augurs against rehabilitation, in my humble opinion. Bill, we have time for one more question in only a few minutes. Uh, it's been a fascinating sitting here listening and being in a dialogue with you. But you, you have really have one of the more unique perspectives on the California prison system. You, system. you mentioned how in 1970 you wrote these stories and visited the, the existing prisons. It's 50, hard to believe it, 51 years later now. <laughs> how would you assess from your own experience the, the biggest changes? And we only have a couple of minutes. Or, or are you at all, do you see things that have become much more positive about the prison system uh, and the trends we see now in terms of the political dialogue about that has really shifted. Mm-hmm. Well, I mentioned that very briefly. I'll just repeat it. There are now organizations, not just the families and friends, but people like my former students who belong to uh, advocacy groups who are linked together thanks to social media, and they talk to Sacramento. It's not the void that it was before in which they did stuff, and most of it was misbegotten. (laughs) Thank you, Pete Wilson, and the rest of them. And and it made everything worse. Well, you can't do that now because there's so many people who are active. We, We can thank social media for that. It's done a lot of bad stuff, too. But it has given a relatively inexpensive tool to people who want to advocate for change. So I think... That's the biggest difference that I see now compared to when I first started going in 1968. Well, in the book, you talk about the anecdote about the resistance to you or even interviewing Eldridge Cleaver and publishing that story, and that <laughs> now that would be a home run. But I, I want to thank our distinguished speaker today, Professor William Drummond, author of Prison Truth. I'm Robert Rosenthal, today's moderator. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, celebrating over 117 years of enlightened discussion, is adjourned. Thank you. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you go to commonwealthclub.org slash donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.